Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to another episode of the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast, where we chat with the leaders at the forefront of change in the healthcare industry. My name is Jonathan Palmer, and I'm a healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house research arm of Bloomberg. We're happy to welcome Molly He for today's episode. She's the CEO of Element Biosciences, which she co-founded in 2017. In 2017. Prior to Element, she was a venture partner at Foresight Capital, one of her lead investors, and she spent a decade at two of the more well-known players in the genomic space, Illumina and Pacific Bioscience. Thank you for joining us today, Molly. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be here. So why don't we kick it off, and, and could you give us an overview of what exactly Element does and, and where you fit into the broader genomics landscape? Yes. Element... The goal is to de- de- democratizing sequencing. And we started this company um, really looking at the current genomics field and looking at what, what is the gap we're trying to fill, right? So you, you, you probably know very well that Illumina drives down the cost of genomics you know, through uh, scaling up the number of samples to run. So my analogy will be like you know, going to Costco so you can get actually lower cost per unit but you have to buy a whole bunch of mm-hmm. um, goods. So that is great for certain customers, but it's, it doesn't really work so well for other cu- type of customers where they have just probably you know one person or two people, a family. So Element is founded to address exactly that problem. That is to how do we actually provide high quality goods to our customers without them having to buy a whole bunch, right? So the idea is, you know, we will bring the cost and the quality um, of, of a high sequencing onto customers with a very minimum requirement of a sample size. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about the sequencing landscape, maybe can we just dive into, for the layperson, because there's probably going to be some people listening to this who don't necessarily know what genomic sequencing is. Can you maybe just give us a quick background of, of what the technology does and, and what some of the applications are? And, and then maybe we'll follow up with some of the history in the space, because you and I have both uh, looked at it for a long time, and there's been a lot of advancements over the last two decades. So DNA sequencing, um, maybe I can go back to what is DNA, why it is important to study that. Perfect. Um, so, you know, we probably all know DNA's genetic code that actually determines the, for example, uh, the phenotypes of a human being, right? Uh, for, you know, there are 30 uh, gig base of DNA inside the people in every single cell. And the interesting thing is 99.9% of these genetic code actually are common across 
entire human population. And there's only 0.1% that's actually different from person to person. And those 0.1% is extremely important that actually gives people very different type of phenotype and, and also their predisposition to genetic diseases. And my analogy will be DNA is your uh, source code. And, um, and that kind of you know, express into the proteins and those are your executables. And proteins are actually the, the, the molecules that carry the function that mm-hmm. actually make who you are um, as a person, right? And then um, if there's something is mutated or changed in your source code, and it may very likely becoming an error in the executable, and then you will actually show some differences in your phenotype. Um, and I think it's it's very well known that you know you can go to 23andMe or some other uh, companies to test your genetic information, and they will actually give you like, hey, you you may uh, have red color or you may have red color hair and you may have um, uh, t- you know, tendency to a snore, for example, right? So those mm-hmm. are actually interesting phenotypes, but more importantly, um, geneticists study DNA, the, the code or the source code to look at a predisposition of their tendency to get certain particular diseases so that they can be well prepared to either change lifestyle or to get treatment uh, proactively so that they can live longer and healthier. Um, So that's why we study DNA and that's why we wanted to actually sequence our DNA to understand how that potentially can lead into a healthier lifestyle. No, that's perfect. Thanks for that overview. If if we think about the evolution of of sequencing technologies, I I think back to the Human Genome Project, and and that project was done on the old applied biosystems machines, and I guess maybe we think about that as first generation technology, and then in the mid two thousands we had Roche with four five four, and maybe that's second, and I don't know if we're in the third or fourth inning. You would know better than I would, but. You know, Illumina acquiring Selexa and building their, you know, sequencing by synthesis platforms really, I think, the third big shift in in technology and in the sequencing space. As you think about the evolution, you know, where are we now and, and kind of what can we expect from the technology in the future? Yeah, so DNA sequencing has become a very um, sophisticated technology in the last, you know, 10, 12 years, or even maybe 20 years. Um, as you mentioned, the DNA sequencing started from very early days of slab gels, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and doing the Sanger sequencing to start with, right? It, we've gone a very, very long way to come to today. And you, you know that, you know, in the early days, in the 80s, the first human genome project, it costed more than 30 countries, more than $1 billion to sequence one genome uh, using Sanger sequencing as a tool. But fast forward to today, we're really talking about $200 genome within a couple of days. And, and, and it's it just fantastic progress and breakthrough that's being made in the past decade. Now, what's next? Um, my personal opinion is that sequencing is now so sophisticated and also made it so simple um, to 
for, for, for scientists to study human genomes, the, the rest is becoming a bottleneck, right? Mm -hmm. what, what, what I mean by rest, that is, for example, the data analysis piece, for example, to the study of other type of molecules, I mentioned a bit earlier that, you know, the executable is proteins, right? And the study of how these protein, uh, molecules work together now become the bottleneck to truly understand um, human health. So for example, um, Element is now really getting kind of beyond DNA sequencing because we know that genotype is not the only determinant of mm -hmm. how human health is, is decided. There's a lot many more levels of regulation in the human body. So DNA is the software as a, a source code, as I mentioned, but then it has to translate into an RNA molecule. There's a many level regulation there because RNA has its lifetime and there's a modification on the RNAs, even though from this exactly same DNA, you can have very different RNA molecules. And from RNA molecules to proteins, there's a, another level of regulation as a translation and there's also protein as a shorter lifetime. Uh, some proteins have longer, but there's a huge dynamic range of protein concentration mm -hmm. inside human body. And proteins can also go additional regulation. For example, it can be modified to uh, uh, suppress its function or enhance its function. So there's so many more layers of regulation that's actually not inside the primary sequencing of DNA alone, right? So there's so many more levels of regulation that people need to understand. So I, I, I firmly believe that DNA sequencing eventually is going to become a commodity. So you can get your DNA sequenced, but on top of that, the scientists will have to understand how these um, other molecules are being made from the same source code and how these are regulated and how that actually leads to a different type of phenotype. So this is where element is going. We're going beyond sequencing and try to understand phenotype and genotype linkage. That's amazing. Uh, you know, maybe just shifting gears, you know, we'll come back to the present day and, and what's next for, for Element. But if I think about what you said about the sophistication of, of sequencing and, and all the steps that go into deriving that genomic information, can you talk a little bit about you know, when the idea for Element first originated with you and, and what you had to do to stand up the company and, and thinking about, you know, sequ a sequencing system, you know, there's the chemistry, there's the optics, library prep, assembly, informatics, all this fun stuff. H how do you actually build a new sequencer? What did you have to do to prove out the concept that became kind of the foundational element, uh, foundational elements of Element, <laughs> if you will? Yeah, yeah. So when we start a company, we saw the gap, right? We mm -hmm. saw the gap that, you know, th there's high demand for democratization of sequencing. What that means is, as I mentioned a bit earlier, that you, you want the individual labs, individual clinical lab or research lab or, or biotech companies to be able to afford to sequence um, any samples without, you know, the, the wholesale type of uh, uh, approach, right? And, and that require us to look at the sequencer, um, the machine that does sequencing in a very different way, meaning that we have to kind of deconstruct the sequencing platform down to every single technical elements, as you were saying, 
and rebuilt from ground up so that we can actually gain orders of magnitude differences or advantages to be able to democratizing sequencing. So what we did was really, you know, exactly as you mentioned, we kind of dwelled down to uh, individual pieces, mm -hmm. uh, including sequencing chemistry, including, you know, the optics, including the software, including the um, um, surface chemistry. Um, really, the key is that we're using first principles approach. We're not kind of we don't want to build on existing technology because that only will give us, you know, incremental improvement. So what we really want to do is using first principles approach and ask us two main questions. Number one, how do I rebuild the system so that we can have orders of magnitude better signal to noise ratio, right? So signal to noise ratio is key for any type of detection scheme because if you have very, very low noise and very high signal, you can actually use that as a budget to improve, you know, for example, turnaround time to improve uh, accuracy and mm -hmm. to improve the cost. Because, you know, my, my, my analogy, again, is seeing stars at night. If you have the very low background, you can see stars so much easier at night with your naked eyes. Now, the second piece that we, we innovate on is that to my earlier point, DNA just one piece of bus puzzle. Mm -hmm. So when we rebuild this DNA sequencer, can we make it possible that this particular machine can also read proteins, can also read other type of molecules, or can look at cells directly? And all of these uh, capabilities extremely important to understand the biology. So that, that is second piece is extensibility of these technical elements is extremely important. So with these two things in mind, we started out looking for completely new, new things, right? That actually can construct into a DNA sequencer or a general tools to study um, a biological molecules. Um, so from day one and on, we've actually invented will have more than 200 patents and patent applications globally. And one you know, interesting story is that when we first started, we just had this grand vision that we need to rebuild this sequencer from ground up. But we didn't really have exact idea on how we're going to do it or what is the particular sequencing chemistry, for example, uh, we're going to use. So it took a lot of trial and error to start. Um, we started a company in late 2017, but we did not get the sequencing chemistry nailed down until May 2019. And I, I actually clearly remember that particular day, um, a, a scientist in the team actually showed me a result of five bases of sequencing manually and on the 96 well plate under microscope. So that was the aha moment as mm -hmm. wow, we do have a sequencing chemistry now at two years after we founded the company. So that's actually a really exciting uh, moment for us. And you, you mentioned, you know, are the other pieces, informatics and surface chemistry, all these things just came along really nicely um, with the same kind of first principle approach that we're taking. So it, it sounds like it's fair to say that the chemistry is the hardest piece of, of constructing a new sequencing system. Is that fair to say? 
I would say it's one of the most hardest pieces, but I would not want to downplay the difficulty of surface chemistry. You know, mm-hmm. maybe in layman's language, surface chemistry is type of chemistry that will allow you to have extremely low background. Um, maybe I'll use analogy of like uh, Teflon, like non-sticky uh, uh, frying pan, right? Because <laughs> it's really important you have that kind of non-sticky surface so that you can actually do all kinds of manipulations of your biological molecules on your pan without having them sticky to the bottom of the pan so that um, you have a lot of background. So that's actually very difficult. And, and that was the one of the first things that we, uh, we, we tackled um, after we um, started this company. And we're very happy that we have a unique surface chemistry now that would allow us to extend analysis from DNA molecule to proteins and cells and directly. You know, you mentioned the over 200 patents that you have are pending. I mean, you know, just knowing that the, the sequencing market has been, there's been a lot of entrants over the year or a handful of entrants over the years. Was it difficult to have freedom to operate just given there's a lot of intellectual property in the space? Really great question. And I think um, the, the existence of patents is exactly to improve innovation, mm-hmm. right? Because I think, you know, we, we are very careful about existing patents. And to your, to your point, there are many, many, many patents. And thanks to all the prior generation of, you know, scientists and, and, and uh, researchers in the sequencing field. So we wanted to be very careful that we're not actually stepping on anybody's um, patents. And that really fills our, you know, innovation pipeline. Um, that the, the reason we, you know, I emphasize first principles is, is that it's the easiest way to get around um, other people's patent because we actually, for example, use a lot of concepts from very different industries uh, in sequencing. And this is the, the dots that nobody connected before. You know, one example about our sequencing chemistry, we call it avidity base chemistry, ABC. This avidity concept is actually very well known in pharma industry, in, in antibody engineering, but it was never used for sequencing. And we took that kind of concept and very smartly um, applied to our sequencing technology. And, and you know, that became a, a breakthrough for us because it gives us, you know, 100 times less region consumption mm-hmm. and at least 10 times or 100 times better data accuracy, right? So these kind of uh, um, innovation is something we are very keen on. That really is the foundation of element. And I, I, you know, do hear you. There's a lot of patents out there, but, you know, by using first principles, we're able to kind of hone our own um, IP landscape. And we have a huge um, room, headroom ahead of us to continue to innovate. You know, you mentioned the, the 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 data, and and I think one of the things that maybe is lost on on folks or the layperson is that all the back end analysis and informatics that has to go into uh, sequencing and and can you just talk about a little bit the the challenges there and 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 you know what has to happen on the back end once you've once you've run the system for the twenty four or forty eight hours plus, mm-hmm. you know, to get the data that's off the flow cell, and then then what do you do with it? Yeah. So um, 
data analysis for sequencing is now very well established. I think the challenge is not the process, mm -hmm. it's rather how to deal with vast amount of DNA sequencing data coming off this instrument so quickly because now we can do turnaround within a couple of days, right? Days, right? The challenge is like how to really analyze and making sense of these data coming out of fire hose. But maybe let me um, walk you through the steps of data analysis and just to show you the complexity and how much work people have done uh, to accomplish you know, where we are today. So once you get these images, you know, essentially, you know, um, any optical-based uh, sequencing technology uses color mm -hmm. to detect ACGTs, right? So each each base, in, in a very simplified way, is represented by one one unique color. So what you are getting um, off the sequencer is actually a high-resolution image of each DNA molecule that's colored differently and it blinks because every cycle, you know, every DNA letter after it actually go, you know, gives you a different color. So when you look at it, at the DNA image, sequencing image in real time, you see the blinking. So for example, one particular DNA spot will blink from green to red and to blue. I'm just making a very oversimplified <laughs> uh, case here. Then from this blinking, the sequence of the color, you call the sequencing of the basis. So now from the image, the primary analysis, what, what, what that means is to do spot finding, find those spots of DNA, and then record the color and, and call basis. This is an A, this is a G, this is T. Now remember, we have to do this in a very highly paralleled way because mm -hmm. every single image has billion, a billion, or even more than billions of d unique DNA data, uh, molecules. So you have to be able to call these bases very quickly in a very high throughput way. So now once you call these bases, ACGT, you, you align them, you, you know what, what the sequences are, the next step is called second, secondary analysis. What that means is that you align those sequences with your reference genome. Because there is, you know, references for a standard human genome, for example, you align to them and you you, you identify the mutations or you identify the insertions or de deletions and, you know, identify the differences. And then once you identify those differences, you go to the tertiary analysis, which is really trying to make sense of these differences. Mm -hmm. Do they matter? Or do they indicate some diseases? Or do they indicate certain, you know, uh, um, uh, phenotype changes in a human being? So, so it's very complicated. But now, thanks to all these prior researchers, it's very standardized. And some people um, to deal with the vast, vast amount of data. Some vendors put, including Element, we actually stream the data into the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. And and then we, we do a lot of secondary tertiary analysis on the cloud. And that can be very much streamlined. And a lot of companies are doing secondary and, uh, and tertiary analysis for sequencing vendors. So that gives customers a lot of uh, options to use which uh, software to use. And as long as they're hosted on the cloud. Um, and then the, the primary analysis, there are a couple different ways to do it as well. The latest trend to 
kind of reduce the amount of data to be uh, um, ported into the cloud and also to reduce amount of data to be stored is called onboard data analysis. And mm -hmm. Element actually uses that, meaning that we are actually using um, FPGA accelerated um, methodology to do a primary analysis directly inside a sequencer. So essentially, in you know, in a, instead of um, handling all the very big files, raw images in the cloud, you are actually you know streamlining the ACGTs, of much much smaller reduced files um, into the cloud, and, and the customers can actually handle those uh, much easier in their hands. Um, so that's kind of the sequencing space, but you know, I think most challenging piece that will come up in the next decade is how we integrate different data types and making sense out of it. And I think a DNA data is already challenging because it's so vast, um, just a, a lot, you know, you're talking about terabytes of data for each run, you know, and in every couple of days, but if a, a machine like in Elements case can also generate protein um, data, can also generate morphology data on top of DNA data, then actually you're talking about orders magnitude more data that coming out of the fire hose. And we have to streamline the data analysis in a very smart way um, so that we can actually unify the data type. It's not no longer segmented. Um, that I think is you know, upcoming challenges for biological sciences, and that will probably require a lot more time to uh, discuss this topic alone. <laughs> well, that, that leads to a good transition. You know, if we think about the future and we, we think about the market landscape today, you know, I, I guess traditionally in genomics, we've thought about, you know, maybe two markets. There's the clinical market and, and the research market. Which are you targeting today, you know, for your instruments? Yeah, so our instrument is RUO, meaning research use only. So it is a, a for, for research right now, because I think DX, you know, when you're talking about IVD um, that require FDA approval, we're not quite there. But the interesting thing is um, there's a lot of clinical research, for example, translational research mm -hmm. can already be done on the on the research instrument, right? Um, you, you probably know like LDTs and uh, lab um, uh, developed uh, tests can be run on the REO product uh, um, platforms. And this is um, actually a, a really great niche that I think elements of VD system can play with a high level of advantage because of our high data quality and high flexibility. Um, you know, the clinical research labs do not have to wait to batch a bunch of samples to to uh, get the uh, economic of, uh, cost. That's interesting. You know, at, at diving a little bit deeper into the landscape question, you know, when I think about your your competition and your primary competition is probably Illumina. You know, they make a sequencer for for all use cases. You know, where do you go head to head to them, and and what do you see as the primary differentiated points? I mean, we talked a little bit about price. We've talked a little bit. Uh, about you know the technology itself, you know what do you see as the key attributes? I guess when you're going through uh, an RFP or a sales cycle with a client, what do you pitch as the the primary advantages to those those research use only cases? 
Yeah, so, so that's a really great question. When we first launched the product, we actually do not expect, we don't really know what to expect. Like, sure, <laughs> you know, we don't know who's our best users, but it's very interesting. Um, now, like organically, we, we, we come to see the trend of our customers. First of all, let me give you like overview of our customers, um, wide variety of um, industry segments, um, little less than 50% are academics. So they are, you know, core labs or individual labs, PIs, and a little over 50% kind of, I I call them biotech or pharma that includes, you know, all these companies and and, and clinical research labs developing uh, LDT assays and also including government uh, service labs. All of them are little over 50%. Now, What's very exciting for us that we did not expect when we first launched the product is that more than 20% of our customers came from clinical research space, translational oh, research space. And you know this space has you know, very slow adoption curve, right? Because you know it, it requires validation and it's very sticky. And once you kind of get... Um, LDT assays running, people normally don't want to change it. Mm-hmm. But why are we getting such a great traction, even though it's 20%, but you know, considering we're only a year and a half old commercially, this is a great traction. And I think that the reason is that we provide very differentiated um, advantages over the current incumbent, mm-hmm. meaning we have ex- extremely high data quality. So now we're talking about Q50, and this is a term um, that you know everybody uses in sequencing. Q50 means uh, making one error every 100,000 basis, right? So the industry standard is Q30. It means making one error every 10,000 basis. So we're really looking at, sorry, the Q30 is one, one error, one every uh, 1000 basis. You make so me feel Q50, better because I make it I make that mistake all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, it's a log scale. So essentially, Q50 um, and Q30 is a 100 fold improvement, right? Mm-hmm. So w- we have extremely high data quality. And then on top of that, we have very low cost as well. And does not require people to batch a lot of samples to get to this uh, economics of scale. So this is actually perfect for clinical samples because you know patient cannot wait, right? Clinicians don't want to wait to batch, you know, hundreds of samples and run one sequencing run per week or per, you know, every other week. So a VD system provide uh, that kind of flexibility. Mm-hmm that you can only run, you know, we can run only three genomes at a time or, or, or equivalent at a time. And there's, you know, no batching needed and you still get very low cost um, as if you're running a factory sequencer. At the same time, you get an extremely high data quality. So this is decentralized um, a, a, a model of sequencing, really attractive to clinical space. So that's something, you know, I, I think we're, we're going to see more um, traction um, in the future. 
you know, uh, there's a bunch of questions for me in there. I mean, the first, just talking about the Q scores, is is there a range of applications that Q, you have to have Q50 versus Q30 um, where it's so much better? Or is it just generally the principle that, you know, less errors is, is by far uh, more valuable? Yeah, great question again. I think Q scores are just one piece of um, metric that, that going towards data quality. Right. So so that's really also very important to look at, for example, uh, evenness of a genome coverage. Mm -hmm. Can you cover, you know, for example, uh, 99% of genome, how do you do with the very difficult regions of the genome? And for example, long stretches, homopolymers, and how do you do with, you know, accuracy of a SNP calling or um, uh, Indel calling, what are your false positives and what are your false negatives? All these things we need to take a look at it together with Q-scores. And uh, you're absolutely right. So this is exactly what we do with our data analysis. We're not, no, not only looking at Q-score, but also all these different metrics. And we're very happy to kind of share um, with everybody that all, every single metrics I mentioned were actually um, better than the incumbent, right? So when you look at a false positive, false negative cause, which is very important for clinical studies, mm -hmm. we're significantly less, we're making significantly less errors um, in false cause um, than the incumbent. And when you look at homopolymer accuracies, we're also five times better in terms of error rate after you go through a long stretches homopolymer. And that's actually, it, very helpful for certain applications in oncology, for example, uh, macro satellite instability, which deals with uh, you know long stretches mm -hmm. of homopolymers. We also have very even coverage of a difficult uh, regions of the genome, uh, and ACGT coverage are very even for us. So that you know all of all of those things um, come together just to sh show how accurate and high data quality and uh, that. Um, Avidi provides. You know, we, we've touched, I think, on a couple pieces of your recent announcement at uh, the J.P. Morgan conference. I believe you highlighted five things, and we've we've touched on the Ultra Q Q50 kit. I think you alluded to the the ability to do multiple analytes. You know, some of the other things you announced were, uh, I saw, was uh, expert mode, where you get twenty to seventy percent more reads per run. What's driving mm -hmm. that? Is that the chemistry, the optics? How are you getting that extra twenty to seventy percent? Yeah, so so that's actually a software um, ah, upgrade. Interesting. Yes, so essentially, um, this upgrade will allow um, our customers to find more spots, <laughs> more DNA spots Understood. Um, on the um, on the surface. So the more DNA spots you can find. In, in the more data you'll have. Of course, you know, for, for certain application, it, it may not be the best because, for example, if you want to um, use this for extremely high data quality clinical exam uh, um, samples, you might not want to go that route because, you know, uh, as you know, the more spots you find and, and the more errors likely you will have. Um, but this application will be great for counting applications, mm -hmm. um, the data quality is comparable when you're looking comparable to our, you know, um, regular mode. Um, if you're looking at two by seventy-five, the shorter uh, read length kit, 
So that's actually perfect for counting because, you know, for, for counting applications, all it matters is a number of reads, right? How many DNA can you see? And there's a lower requirement on DNA quality. So this is actually really important for, for example, NIPT counting or, you know, single cells because single cell whole transcriptome is all about counting as well. So, and, and that's actually a very large market. That's why we, you know, produce this product. You know, maybe just going back to that, you know, what have you seen from from the users so far? I mean, have they been have they been primarily gravitating to one or two specific applications, whether it's, I don't know, RNA-seq or whole genome sequencing? Is there a way to characterize what the use case has primarily been for your, for your system? Yeah, so primarily um, whole genome and exome and also targeted resequencing. Okay. All three of them all together is our major revenue generator. Um, that is followed by single cell, roughly uh, more than 20%. Um, our customers doing or revenue came from single cell. And then um, the last but not least is AgBio, which is very interesting to us. We, we, we didn't really expect that piece either. So we actually have extremely high win rate um, in AgBio space um, against our competitors even though you know it generates probably 10% of our revenue, but it, we have extremely high win rate. And the reason being that AgBio usually you know, uses genotyping um, as the foundational technology, mm -hmm. but now with Avidi, a very high data quality and very low cost, they're able to do low pass whole genome sequencing or genotype by sequencing to replace a GWAS. And, and that's the piece that we're, we're actually very excited about because a VD box is actually perfect for that. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I wouldn't have expected AgBio to be one of the the early converts here. You know, if you yeah. think about if you think about the the commercial landscape, you know, you, you mentioned launching, um, you know, not that long ago. What have been some of the challenges and just getting the system in the hands of, of clients? And and how how should I think about like your sales cycle you know you probably you know you guys probably know where all the major genome centers are you know who the biggest mm -hmm. biopharma companies are you know how long does it typically take to get a box you know in a lab yeah so that that will depend on the um, industry segment I, I think that the clinical research lab probably take a bit longer right because they wanted to see validation they're a lot more cautious um, and some maybe biotech companies um, might be a lot faster. So really depending on the application um, that, that they are running. Um, I will say the biggest challenge for Element when we first launched the, the, the product was the perceived risk premium. And there's a saying that, you know, you don't get fired by buying IBM. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're facing. We, 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 what we have been facing at least. Um, because this is very sticky and, you know, Illumina has done a great job dominating the market. And 90% of the human genomes are run on Illumina's machines. So there's a certain degree, a high degree of stickiness there. And also they've built a very strong ecosystem surround that sequencing platform. So it, it's very challenging for any newcomers, including Element, 
to pursue our customers, hey, you know, you, you will have a minimum switching cost and you will have equal or better data quality. And we're here with you going through the journey of a switching. And that really is our biggest challenge. Um, and and um, that's why in our product development team, we actually designed our workflow to minimize switch costs, right? Either from upstream like library prep side or downstream data analysis side, we want the, the element system to be as plug-in as possible. Like it, it just basically remove any switching cost. So that could potentially, you know, help the conversion um, much, much easier. And yeah. another thing that we're doing that will help conversion or overcome the risk premium is that we have extremely strong customer support. And we wanted to make sure our early customers are very well taken care of and, you know, they're being successful. And, and, and the, the system has to be built extremely robust so they do not have, you know, issues in the field. And that's exactly what we did. And it's very gratifying to see that our customers love a VD system. And I mean, our mean time between failures is that, that, you know, I think it's public information is more than 120 days on average. And that's actually above the industry standard. And we're very happy to see that. And we have an excellent, excellent um, customer support team. They're proactive and they, you know, want to make sure customers are successful. So all those things are um, helpful in change that kind of perception of risk premium. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I will say that our customers, um, you know, they're all early customers. We have, you know, more than 100 customers now. They are, they are, you know, brilliant scientists and researchers who are willing to take a risk on us and we're very appreciative of that. And that's why we wanted to make sure these guys are super successful. And, you know, they are taking advantage of a groundbreaking product that will be with them for many years to come. Do you feel, you know, having been in the this marketplace for, you know, a long time, do you, do you feel that the openness to, to making a switch is maybe now higher than it was five to 10 years ago, it, it, it seems like, you know, you, there's yourselves and, and others, you know, I think you're further along than, than most, if not all. But, you know, if we think back 10 years ago, you know, there was Illumina, I guess maybe Solid was still around and Ion Torrent, mm -hmm. which had some very specific use applications. But it seems like the landscape is now a little bit broader than it was a decade ago, or even five years ago. Are, are, are you finding that the, the tenor of those conversations, just because there is there are more options out there, maybe helps helps make some of those transitions? Yes and no. I think it's really, it, 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 yes, meaning the market is ripe for alternatives. No, it also means that in the past five, 10 years, there are many failed sequencing companies and trying to, you know, uh, get a piece of pie, but just couldn't make it. So that actually um, does not help the, the, the mentality of our customers, right? Because like, okay, you know, I've seen many companies uh, coming and go, and how do I know you're going to stay here? How do you know Element's going to, still going to be around in the next three, five years? So that actually makes it actually 
tougher because you know there has not been any success in the past to challenge Illumina. So you know I, I, I will say it, what's most important for newcomers like Element is to produce results because results matter. Mm -hmm. And the results meaning that we will have to be not only better and faster and more affordable, but also more robust and also have better customer service so that we can help customers to, you know, uh, switch in the transition. And we just have to make extra effort to be successful. And I think that's truly exciting for us, you know, even though it is extra effort, but and to see that the market has a, a new option and new alternative that kind of promote innovation, um, it's just very gratifying for us. That's great. You know, you mentioned you have over 100 customers and, and can you share some other numbers around maybe orders and, and the actual number of your installed base? I think you've made those public. Yeah. Um, as of end of Q4, we, we have received more than 160 orders uh, globally, and that number continues to increase. And end of Q4, we have 112 installed base globally. Um, out of that number, about 15% are new to NGS, which is also exciting for us. Um, these folks, you know, either uh, had to send the samples out to mm -hmm. take advantage of the low cost of a service lab. Um, but now they can afford it because, you know, with, because of Avidi and they don't have to wait for many weeks to get the results back. Or these folks are, um, as I mentioned earlier, they, they were, you know, AgBio uh, customers that who used to use um, um, arrays and, and genotyping. That's interesting. You know, as I think about the the sequencing market and just traditionally how the the financials have worked, it's been a razor razor blade. You know, mm -hmm. have have a a certain percentage of your customers gotten to maybe what we'll call like maximum throughput, if you will, or or pull through? How are you starting yeah, to see we, we, you know kind of where that tops out yet? Yeah, we we we've definitely seen some of our pioneers um, customers reach that kind of steady state. We're very happy to see that. And obviously, you know, that required a couple of things to happen. One is, you know, um, um, their applications need to be well studied or well characterized and validated on the platform. And the second thing is just the natural maturity of, you know, um, the process, right? So these customers are normally um, had VD for more than six months. So we've seen um, a few labs already reaching that kind of um, uh, steady, steady state that's comparable to the incumbent utilization. Oh, that's great. You know, as yeah. I think about the, the the bringing on of a new a new system into the market, I mean, it's pretty well known that when Illumina's brought their flagship instruments to market, there's been a, some challenges with manufacturing and, and just you know, scaling up the the infrastructure to commission the instruments. What what did you have to do to kind of avoid some of those hiccups on the on the the manufacturing or commissioning mm -hmm. side of the business to make sure that you provided that customer satisfaction from day one and and you know didn't make some of the missteps that maybe others in the past have made. Yeah, great question. Um, so far, our supply chain and quality has gone way ahead of our forecast curve. Oh, that's we're, we're great. very lucky to have that. 
Um, you know, we do have a very healthy backlog coming into Q124, but that's not because, you know, we're limited in our supply or, or quality. It's really because, you know, we need to work with our customers and need to do site prep and training, right? Um, now, coming back to the supply chain, how do we ensure we're ahead of our uh, curve? A couple of things. It's actually fundamentally rooted in the quality and the build of the product. It's it's really, really important that when we, you know, in, in the R&D side, when we build the instrument, we already have um, the easiness of manufacturing, the modularity uh, designed into the system because, you, you know, supply chain or, or quality, it's not a just one a narrow function. It, it really, you know, start stretch down to all the way to the design of the instrument and design of the system only then we can actually make sure that the manufacturing is scalable so that's one piece that we do very differently from other companies we, we ensure in the early days of R&D the manufacturability is already considered right the scalability is already considered now the second piece um, coming back to supply chain we also um, do a couple of things. One is we lock down the, the components early. Whenever we can, we lock it down and we start to risk buy. And I, I think these are this really paid off, especially during the COVID days. So we, we really kind of in the luxury of not running out of parts, right? And that, that's mm -hmm. really important for us. You know, just thinking out loud here, you know, as we talk about some of the challenges of, of a newer entrant um, coming to market, you know, you, you talked about uh, the, the survivor bias maybe of, of some of the companies in this space. And, and that led me to thinking about, you know, just your funding and your funding requirements for the you know, next, for next few years. I mean, you've done a few rounds here. How would you characterize the balance sheet today? And, and is that a... a, a a positive factor for you or a gating factor, you know, for moving ahead, mm -hmm. either faster or slower? I'm, I'm not really sure which yeah. way to, <laughs> to approach it. Yeah. So, so we have a great group of investors. Um, it's all public information. Um, they, they're very supportive um, in our growth as a company. We're currently not restricted in terms of, you know, how fast we want to grow or uh, how big we want to grow. But obviously, we want to be very uh, measured in terms of our growth, right? Because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So we do have um, very sophisticated long-range financial model, for example, that's also realistic. And we actually base on our spending, uh, um, you know, base, uh, spending based upon those long-range financial model. And it's very important for element, and I would say for any startup companies to not to get ahead of ourselves in spending. And it has to be uh, milestone driven, right? So for example, you know, how many units we sell, we will open up, you know, X amount of dollars to continue to scale. And that's really, really important for us. We want to remain gritty and mm -hmm. we want to remain scrappy because that that's really is how we are going to responsible for our investors and shareholders. That's great. You know, if uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here, and I, I guess maybe one question that comes to mind is, you know, what misconceptions might there be in the marketplace, either on the financial financial services side or, or you know, on the customer side 
about the company that you'd like to either dispel or or just maybe um, you know drive home that how you're different. Yeah, thank you for asking that. There were definitely a lot of um, rumors that we heard from you know the field, and um, therefore, for example, some rumors will be, "Oh, Elements not no longer going to be here next year," or another rumor will be, "You know, Elements cost is low, but they're going to hike up your price, you know, next year." That's just the introductory. So there's a lot of rumors about there that, and I wanted to clarify that we're going to be around. And, um, and we're going to continue to innovate and in bringing, a, you know, better and better products to our customers and to the society. And also, we do have lifetime price guarantee on our reagents um, for, for, uh, for AVD, right? Meaning that we're, those price, for example, $200 genome and the list price of $1680 per kit, those are lifetime uh, uh, for, for AVD. So I wanted to make sure you know people understand this is not introductory, and we're committed to deliver factory sequencing type of uh, a price per unit onto a desktop instrument because that's how we change the field, how we uh, um, democratize sequencing. That's that's great. Your your journey's been fascinating. I mean, you've disclosed that you have over twenty five million in revenue. You know, if I think of one of your closest peers, it. It took them a very long time to get to 100. I think you're going to beat that by a, a long shot. But one of the ways, Molly, I like to wrap up these discussions is to focus on a, a life lesson that the, the speakers learned. So I was just wondering, is there one thing in, in your business career or your personal life that guides you or that you share with your team? Yeah, it really coming down to how we want to be a person, how we want to be a business. These are all connected together, in my opinion. And, you know, when we hire people, we look at two things, you know, how smart that person is and how kind that person is. Because I, I, I really think that it's important for a company, especially like underdog element company, to be successful. We need to have a great group of people who not only are experienced um passionate about what we do, but also great people with high level of integrity. And that's very, very important to me personally, um, being honest, be authentic, because that's how we're going to change the world. That's great. That's a great cultural uh, mission statement there. So I think we'll wrap up. That's Molly He, CEO and co-founder of Element Biosciences. Thanks again for joining us today, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for our latest episode please make sure to click the follow button on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a future discussion with the leaders in healthcare innovation. I'm Jonathan Palmer, and you've been listening to the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast by Bloomberg Intelligence. Until next time, take care.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.